0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 261, for April 5th, 2023. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk to one of Andrew's former students about his field school experience in Scotland. So, get your passport ready. I'm sure I've said that one before, (laughs) because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is... Andrew in California. Hey, guys. How's it going? And also Bill in California.
1: Yep. Good morning.
0: All right. Well, guys, we have a guest today. Hopefully, you know, internet and flooding and all that stuff doesn't st- doesn't stop us today because, you know, California is pretty much a, a garbage pit of weather right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's, it's very soggy. It's, yeah. it's yeah. soggy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. The, yeah.
1: the, weed, the weeds in my yard are evildoers that have grown up to my thigh basically and I oh, you know, I was out there with my son chopping them down and in about 30 minutes we filled our entire compost bin <laughs> with weeds right. and, and made it like five square feet you
2: know oh my god dude our, in our backyard I think it, it I think it's a spring like I'm not kidding there, there's a place in our mm-hmm. backyard where it's so wet that it's like Eighty percent water and like twenty percent dirt. And I'm like, dude, was there an ancient spring here? Like, it seemed. I, I think the rains fed the ancient spring.
1: Well, I, I, there's some stuff. Really, if you have been watching this recent season of The Mandalorian, maybe you should go swim in it. You never know.
0: Oh, but, I haven't dude, seen that put yet. Your,
1: put your helmet on and don't take it off, and swim right. in the water.
0: Right. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, we have a guest today and it's Andrew's guest and Andrew's topic today. So I'm going to throw it over to him to introduce him.
2: Okay. So on our humble show this afternoon, we have my student Griffin Fox. And the reason why I wanted to invite Griffin on here is because, well, he's had actually a lot of experiences in archaeology in his young life. But one of the ones that I thought was really interesting is he went to Scotland over the summer and was part of an archaeology project there. But that project was run by basically a person who works in CRM. And I thought it would be really interesting first just to get Griffin to tell us his background and what he's doing in archaeology and intro himself and then get into how field schools and CRM work together in some countries. And we can compare it to ours where so often they don't. So with that, Griffin, just uh, tell us who you are and how's it going? So I'm Griffin Fox. I'm currently an associate
3: archaeologist in the wonderful world of CRM. Before that, as previously mentioned, I started my anthropology slash archaeology career at Moorpark, learning from Andrew and his field classes and such, after which I transferred to UCSB, did some more field and lab work and other things of that sort there. My archaeology career, quote unquote, even though I wasn't being paid, started with Andrew's field classes. I learned how to excavate very early on, which is unfortunately a very rare thing in archaeology I later came to learn. Mm-hmm. When I transferred to UCSB, all the other students I was with were all like, oh, you've actually dug before? And I was like, you haven't? It was So that was very jarring and unfortunate <laughs> to see. So yeah, then after that, I worked with Now, Dr. Caitlin Brown, who was at the time a grad student at UCSB, and I did more field and lab work with her on her dissertation. I moved on to compose an undergraduate thesis with Dr. Doug Kennett while I was there. I experienced the wonderful world of COVID, which was was cool. I guess.
2: Yeah, that's right. You (laughs) you had the sort of bummer experience at a place like UCSB where once you get there and then you're like, oh, you have to stay home and not go to the beach. Yeah, it was strange.
3: Very strange. Yeah. (laughs) I think I made it work well enough, at least with like undergrad experience. Going outside was a bit of a no, no, obviously. But (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: no, it felt like it Went really well for you, ultimately. I I, I felt like you and a lot of your cohort, you know, played it pretty well, basically as well as could be, you know? So good for you, man. I
3: I played my cards, right? And I just figured, like, since the whole world shut down, I might as well just see what I can do and anything I can do, I will. And that Mm -hmm. ended up being more than I anticipated, which was good.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You you know, at that point, as you're sort of finishing off at, at UCSB, how did you get in touch with the Scotland project?
3: That was a while after I, gra- or about a year after I graduated. I had been working first at the repository at UCSB, and then I switched over to CRM. But I had just come to realize, like, as much as I love California archaeology, it's it's not really my end goal. I've lived in California my whole life, and I'd like to get experience and live in other parts of the world. And then my friend Stephanie, who was also in your classes right. as you know she was actually the one who found it and she posted about it on instagram and it just piqued my interest because it was one very affordable and two like i'd always been interested in scottish archaeology but obviously ucsb mixed with COVID was a terrible mix for trying to study that sort of thing yeah
2: pretty bad so, almost yeah. perfectly terrible
3: almost exactly the opposite of what you want if you're trying to understand <laughs> Picts.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm You know, (laughs) Um, let me let me jump in real quick, because you you mentioned you had been interested in uh, in Scottish archaeology. But is was that the additional drive to get you into wanting to study archaeology or was it just general archaeology, you know, as a field that you were interested
3: in? So, yeah, I guess I should talk about how I got into archaeology to begin with, because when I got to Park, I didn't really know what I wanted to do whatsoever and that's kind of, that's why i went to Moore park as opposed to a four year cuz i wasn't going to spend thousands of dollars to be an undeclared major sure makes sense yeah so my first class actually was native american history taught by susan kinkella cuz i'd always had some vague mm. interest in like in learning about the pre-contact americas that obviously they don't really teach in your k through 12 but i figured it must be a thing we know something about And I was happy to learn I was correct. Mm -hmm. And then from there, she plugged Andrew's classes about, it was the archaeology of, like, the tribes of California. Oh, right. And I thought, yeah, and I thought that sounded interesting. So then I took that class and from there declared anthropology as my major. And that's where we're at now. (laughs) It snowballed from there. Kinkella basically gave me Stockholm Syndrome. Now I can't leave. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> there you go see there's there's so much there that that shows what i'm really like i can't actually get students i need my wife to do it for me you know yeah. just so i can actually get a few that's, people in the seats uh, all the pieces are coming together
0: now i was kind of wondering yeah. what that missing piece was and that's there it, it all makes sense now
3: yeah,
2: yeah. By everything, by the,
3: we, <laughs> together. by the time i realized my mistake it was too late so late <laughs> and he, had, he had convinced you like you can't leave now nobody else will take you i was like that's yeah. a good point i'm stuck
0: <laughs> oh nice nice all right yeah. so back to scotland yeah yes.
3: so. so yeah i learned about that field school it was cheap very, fairly quick it was only five days but i mean for me like between crm and andrew's classes and my other various experiences i'd had enough field experience to where i didn't like i needed longer than that necessarily i think that's very fair yeah Yeah. i I totally get that i would have done Mm -hmm. it longer had it been offered longer but you know five days was what it was and for the price that's what i was gonna do so i signed up for that myself and a couple of my friends and then in august 2022 was when we actually went yeah it was run by dr murray cook who i forget his official title because it's all different over there but he's Something like the Sterling City Council's archaeologist or something akin to that. And it's Mm -hmm. basically what his job is basically what like a project manager mixed with like crew chief almost would do in an American CRM firm, but it's paid for and run by the city instead of by a private firm.
2: Yeah. See, just that setup I I find so interesting, you know, because we don't have it's like. Where we live out, city of Moorpark is going to put money towards an archaeology project. What? You know, it's, it's, it's so foreign and kind of in the best sense of the word, you know. It was, yeah, very jarring,
3: but also I almost wish ours was a little more like that sometimes. I get why it can't be, but it was, it seems to, I don't want to say work better, but work in a much more streamlined way, a lot less parties involved.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think some of that has to do with why why the city over there would be, you know, the ones driving that and more concerned with it is if I'm not mistaken, I wish Doug could have made the show today. But if I'm not mistaken, at least in England and I thought the entire UK, pretty much everything under the ground is owned by the crown. Like you have to report it. It's it's you know, it's something that. You just you just know that, right? And so every time you dig, every time you you know make something or do something, there is archaeology everywhere, right? You can't drop a spoon Mm -hmm. in the UK without finding archaeology under the ground, and and they appreciate those resources. So yeah, it totally makes sense, but it's just not the same. It's just not the same here, you know, in the states. I mean, obviously we have laws and stuff, but the ownership is different, and the and depending on where you are at, and then the the, obviously the regulation is different depending on where you are at. So yeah, very different system.
3: Yeah, for sure. One thing about the ownership actually which was very jarring but I guess it was fine there. The site we were digging at was um Pictish and then a hint of medieval, some other stuff as well, mm-hmm. but those were the two like largest inhabited settings. Mm-hmm. We'd find a lot of Victorian stuff which is, you know, basically our equivalent of like historic cans, bottles, like early 1900s <laughs> type think, thing. Right. And anytime we found something like that Murray was like, "Yeah, no, we we find that stuff all the time. You can, you can just keep that. And I was like, whoa, really? (laughs) What? That's looting. Nice. (laughs) So that, that alone was a very jarring difference. Yeah. And I mean, I think it ties into, yeah, what you were saying about like how it's all basically run by the, it's run by the government and owned by the crown from what I understand. And I think Mm -hmm. also because archaeology over there is more of a subsect of history than anthropology. And because most mm-hmm. of the archaeology in the United States is about a different group of people versus in the UK, it's always been the UK, more or less. There isn't that yeah. like, contact element. So just the whole nature of it on a very fundamental level is the perception of it is so vastly different.
1: Yeah. There's
3: another, another big thing was the site we were working at we were. It was not at all kept secret. It was in the middle of a park that people were just walking around at all hours of the day. We were just mm-hmm. right off a path, so people would be walking their dogs or just walking right by us. And sometimes they would stop and just ask, like, "Oh, what's going on over here?" Mm-hmm. And instead of having to come up with some cover story, as I'm sure we're all used to, <laughs> Murray <laughs> right. would I just, my keys. Them. Yeah, "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> oh, I'm, That's we're, good. I haven't used that one. That's great. That is, that is a good <laughs> one. <yeah. laughs> At least that next time. But no, instead of that, he would just tell them exactly what was going on, what we found so far, what the site was, what the boundary, everything. Yeah. And again, for me, that was so jarring for someone who's always having to be like, Oh, I'm a geologist. I'm a biologist. I'm just mm-hmm. here to check. So Edison's power line, like, you know, every say anything, but archeology span over here, basically. Mm hmm. Right.
2: Yeah. I think that's such an interesting, you, you know, take. And and it seems healthy in so many ways, you know, Hello, yeah. local people are interested. You can you can just you can you know, you can tell the truth. Oh, yeah. my God. You know, <laughs> and just I don't know. I I, I would love at if some point in our own country, we could get to a place like that, you know, where we can mm-hmm. just be relaxed. And, yeah, for sure. And, and fill the general public's interest for, because they're curious about. Their own history, you know, why
0: don't we go ahead and take a break real quick and then we'll find out because I want to get into, you know, really what the field school was like, you know, the day to day, what you guys were, you know, just 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 an experience for somebody who hasn't done a field school over in Scotland, because that's exactly what we're talking about. Right. So just kind of like everything about it, getting over there and all that stuff. And that's going to be a little bit long and I don't want to break it up. So we'll take a break now and then we'll come back on the other side and and have that whole segment to talk about it. So back in a minute. (laughs)
2: So welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we have been talking about field school in Scotland with my student Griffin Fox. And Griffin, I thought during this segment that we could really take a deep dive into the field school because so many of us haven't worked in Europe before, have no idea how a field school in Scotland goes. What's the daily setup, you know, for a field school in Scotland? What do you do in the morning? You know, where do you stay at night? And that kind of thing. So if you could just sort of take us through that experience, I think that could be really cool. So how, how did it go for you?
3: So, um, I guess for starters, I should say I was in the city of Sterling, which I think I've already touched on. It's not at all. like It's not the highlands. I was not roughing it up in the mountains as fun as that would have been. So I was just staying in a hostel in town. It was a 10 to 15 minute walk give or take from my room to the site. So not exactly roughing it. It was pretty easy in that regard. But that all, of course, that would vary if you're working up in the highlands or somewhere else in Europe or whatever. Right. Yeah. Other than that, um, the actual work, we dug four trenches, I want to say. Three or four. I'm pretty sure it was four. Yeah. Four trenches, which was a wider area of digging that i am been used to here in the
2: states I've only right ever done just when you said test the units when you said like four trenches i was like whoa you know yeah. so about about how big were they like how big were the trenches i
3: forget the exact measurement it was something like
2: i think it was two meters
3: by four or five give or take
2: yeah jesus so,
3: large they were quite large yeah but there was mm-hmm. 20 plus people there so i mean it went by fairly quickly but right mm-hmm.
2: Were you digging like, you know, 10 centimeter levels or how did you guys go down as you went? So they were much less
3: concerned with stratigraphy, at least on that project, I think, because mm-hmm. it had already been so badly compromised that. Uh, they, Yeah, we weren't really we weren't taking as exact measurements. And I even asked them about it and they they were not concerned. They were they were interested that we that us as Americans were more interested in that. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <kind of> funny. <laughs> That could just be a project-by-project thing, but at least in Mm -hmm. that one, it was... Yeah, no, stratigraphy and measurements were not nearly... If we found some very notable artifact, there was more measurements being taken, and obviously the dimensions of the artifacts themselves and all that were being taken, but depth and placement Mm -hmm. was a lot less emphasized over there.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you you dig for a while, and then you guys, what, break for lunch, or do you have like a mid-morning break, or is there you know, like a tea time or something that would happen over there across the pond? There was,
3: in fact, a tea time, which was very funny. Uh Most stereotypical UK thing. (laughs) There was Uh tea time about two hours in and then two hours after that was lunch. And then we'd get one more break in the afternoon before we packed up for the day. And Mm. we were basically there from nine to five, give or take.
2: Right. Yeah. It sounds pretty straightforward. And, and also your living accommodations, man, that sounds nice. You know, it like was, I'm, I'm jealous that they were able to set up a project like that where the crew could stay at a hostel type situation, super close to the site. So as a crew, did you guys just all like walk down together in the morning?
3: Well, I should preface it. Food and lodging and all that was not accommodated for that was something Uh, we had to find ourselves right so that was just what me and my friends stumbled on was that hostel so so
2: everyone would like stay in town
3: more or less some people who were actually living in scotland would just commute from whatever city they were in right like there was a couple people who would take the train from edinburgh or whatever there was other people like farther away but still in the city that would still need to take the train or whatever to get close enough but me and my friends all stayed in the same place and we just walked and a couple other people did the same. Right. It was very much, that's kind of, that's why I say not a traditional field school per se, because it was very much just you pay for the digging experience, the rest is up to you, mm-hmm. which in some ways I kind of liked because I know oftentimes field schools can, I don't want to say scam, but they can put you up in a place that isn't ideal or Right. There's I a lot you can say,
2: I think you can say scam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it I can be a scam. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> but I but I appreciated the agency that it, like separate that paying for your own food and housing and all that allowed for. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. I, th- I think it's excellent, Bill. I can see your question. Yeah. What's up, man?
1: I wanted to know: Are there were there any folks that were getting stipends or anything on that, or were the people who were directing the project were they getting paid or was it just only the city archaeologists was getting paid and everyone else was paying to be there
3: there was like one or two i want to say other people who were getting paid he had a crew of like supervisors i don't know if they had an official title i don't think they were being paid by the city but he gave them a stipend there was one who was a another fully trained professional archaeologist and then he had a couple undergrads and grad students that he had worked with long enough that were basically helping him run the show. They were getting compensated for gas money at the very least. I'm not sure how much further the pay went, but they were definitely right. getting something.
2: Right on. Yeah. No, oh, that's that's great. I still I just I can't get over the the organization of this. And I just you know, Griffin, when you originally told me about this, I was of course insanely jealous because it was a good idea that I was not a part of. And that must have been I did for you. It was very difficult. I went into a period of mourning for myself. But yeah, I was really impressed, you know, and Murray sounded like he was doing something in such an intelligent, reasonable manner, you know. And of those people on the crew I'm curious about where they want to go with their lives. Like, like we want, we know where you want to go with yours. You want to go onward and get a PhD and all this kind of good stuff. But did you get a sense of what the other people on that crew wanted to do that they want to continue in CRM or, you know, what, what did they want?
3: Yeah. um, I didn't interrogate them specifically on it, but it was a mixed bag. There was definitely, there was one that I know is basically like Murray's apprentice quote unquote, Mm -hmm. trying to do the same thing, the CRM or it's not called that over there, but you know what I mean? Yeah. There's others that are currently just trying to get their bachelor's and or master's. I couldn't tell you if they're trying to get more into that public archeology span side of things or academics, but I mean, it seems much more hand in hand over there also. So it could be, it could really go
2: either way. Right. And then, in terms of the CRM, when you said oh, they don't call it that there, what do they call it there? I think the I think the official term
3: is just public archaeology. Oh, um,
2: another yeah, completely I, reasonable term.
3: Yeah, right? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> What's when, up with that? <laughs> yeah. When Murray introduced himself, he did say CRM, but I'm pretty sure he was just saying that for us as Americans, like as a frame of reference for what he does, because I've, in all my other dialogues with European archaeologists, I don't often hear the phrase CRM.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. me neither. No, that's cool. that He was, you know, he was speaking your language in order yeah. to get you to understand what was what in store for you. Dumbing it down for the stupid, ignorant Americans. <laughs> exactly. So I know that this experience affected you in a very positive way. Again, I became instantly jealous because, you know, another professor that you liked him better than me has this influenced your choices in terms of grad school or career choice or, you know, moving forward? Well, I definitely, I did not realize how, uh, how niche Scottish
3: archeology span actually was. Mm-hmm. I assumed it had been all kind of very much documented and was like a get in line kind of situation. Right. As it turns out, that's not the case because for a very long time they were basing all Scottish archaeology, or all Pictish archaeology at least, off of Roman accounts, Mm -hmm. which, as we know, I feel like as American archaeologists, history is oftentimes biased, but over there, since it's archaeology is a subsect of history, they hadn't had that realization as recently as we have. And so Uh there's a big gap in actual authentic knowledge on the Picts that I think... I would like to going forward, study more. And I think with my background working mostly in prehistoric contexts without written word, I think I'll have something of an advantage. So, yeah, basically, sure. it did shape my entire grad school approach.
2: Right. No, that's that's great. And a, a couple things are first when you say Pictish, I don't know what that is. So I am yeah, yeah. wonder if you just explain the basics of like how old it is time period. You know, what is meant by the word Pictish? Yeah. So
3: it's actually kind of a blanket term almost. It's what the uh, Romans referred to the Scottish tribes as when they were conquering the entire world, or at least trying to. Mm-hmm. I forget the exact time range. It's obviously they exist a little before the Romans and then basically fade away with them when like the Iron Age and the Vikings and all that come into play. Mm hmm. But yeah, no, it's a it's a catch-all term. They were called picts because they would like cover themselves in war paint and then pict Latin like picture. They looked like paintings. That's why the Romans called them that.
2: Yeah, interesting, man. And then for you, so you have this experience in a you know what feels like like a local almost you know local city archaeology project that has a a very CRM flavor to it, and then you take it back home, and then for Your grad school, is this something you looked for in terms of where you were applying with the professors, that kind of thing? Yeah, I
3: applied to a lot of Scottish schools, actually, because, you know, that would be the place to learn about Scotland. But then there's all the issues with going to grad school as an international student, the -hmm. lack of funding, the much quicker and much less um, personal, I want to say, grad programs over there, which have their pros and cons. I think for me, the American system would work better. It seems more in line with my ways of approaching these things. But yeah, so then I looked at American schools as well that had European archaeology programs, one of which was Buffalo. And while they didn't have a Pictish or Scottish archaeologist on staff, I talked with the people there and there was enough of a collection of faculty there for it to work for me. And then I would just have to Do some networking on my own, which I've already done, and I feel confident in my ability to do more of. So that's where I'm at now.
2: No, I think that's great. And another thing that I think it's excellent that you bring up is you're an American student who wants to work in Europe and. I've seen other students like that in the past try and do that. And I know it's pretty difficult because like if you want to work in the Maya world, you know, or this kind of thing or work in the desert southwest or something like that, there's a lot of choices, right? So many Mm -hmm. of my students in my cohort when I was a student, you know, we all ended up in that kind of stuff or to South America, to Peru or this kind of thing. But going someplace like Scotland, I thought was intrinsically pretty hard because it seems like there's not that much in terms of faculty in the four-year world who can take students on to do that it seems like as you would think it seems like it's all in Europe was it difficult to find even a place like Buffalo
3: it was I actually only reached out to Buffalo because I had heard just through the years that they had a decent European archaeology program but like I said nobody focusing on Scotland so I just reached out as kind of a a last-ditch effort really I asked right. them if I, like, the man I reached out to, I sa- I basically said, I know you don't work in Scotland, but would you consider, like, advising me for a master's? And he got back to me and said, first off, you need to apply for the PhD because you're way too qualified for just the master's, which already, you know, stroked my ego. Yes. And, <laughs> so, and then he said, he basically said, I know I don't focus in Scotland, but I've advised plenty of dissertations much like what you're interested in in all parts of Europe. I have connections all over. I can get you set up alongside any connections you have yourself. I'm happy to advise anything loosely related. It, it was weirdly perfect for something sure. that I was not at all intending on truly going to. Mm-hmm. And now it's my, not only my top pick, it's where I've accepted my, they they accepted me. I've said, yes, that's where I'm going.
2: Yeah. And I, I love this story because that's how it's done. You know, I, I have this odd feeling in my chest right now. I'm pretty sure it's called pride. Ooh. Yeah. That must I must a it's, new it's, one for you. <laughs> it's very, it's very strange. It's very strange. But, pride for yeah. somebody else. Wow. Yeah, not, not for myself. I don't know. Hopefully it'll pass, but I really dig how you, how you did this. Cause I, I'd seen you, you know, apply to these various places and you have this interest that's a bit specific, but the way that you kind of stuck it all together to make it work for you and reaching out and making those connections. It's like, that's how it's done, man. I I hope that other students hear your story in terms of how you ultimately got to Buffalo and also uh, know that you applied to a bunch of other places. You got denied a bunch of other places. You stayed in it, you know, and you ultimately found a place that to me sounds about as close to perfect as you can get, you know, for your interest. So I, I just I think you just played that game exactly right, my friend. And, you know, I hope other students can kind of, again, take from this. It's like you don't just apply to two places and when you hear no go. Oh, well, I guess I'll walk away. You didn't. And it worked out fantastic. Well, thank you. I
3: think the best thing for any students or emerging professionals listening whether it be in CRM or academia or any other if there are any other facets of archaeology you can make money off of um, <laughs> mm-hmm. podcasting for <laughs> true for podcasting yeah <laughs> for for whatever you're trying to do the best thing you can do is just reach out to people and just see what's out there even if it isn't your top pick or whatever cuz anything can eventually snowball into something else or even just having having experience under your belt which so many of us don't unfortunately just gives you such an edge so just Mm -hmm. like keep an eye out even if it isn't your top pick just or even if you're if it seems intimidating just reach out and find something and for me at least it all worked out (laughs)
2: right no i think that's that's great my own story is very similar to that i i was like riverside what there's a school out there (laughs) you know and it it, it's very similar so i just i think that a lot of us have that same story so anyway Mm
0: -hmm. good for you man thank you all right well that sounds like a good place to take a break and we'll come back on the other side and wrap this up back in a minute
1: pulling up to mickey d's
0: just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from
2: McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other
0: offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 261. And we are talking to Griffin Fox. And Griffin, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, and I'm going to I'm just going to lay this on you. You know, you're 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 going to school, you're going for a Ph.D. program. What is your desired ultimate goal in archaeology? Like, what where would you say you've like, OK, this is where I've wanted to be. This is where I want to go. Or are you still making that decision?
3: So overall, my end goal, I would like to teach and I'd like to do so in a way similar to Kinkella and others who have taught me where I can actually provide undergraduates and graduate students with actual field opportunities and other things of that nature. Because mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get exposed to that sort of thing early on. But like I said earlier, most people that I've talked to did not. And I think that's a big problem in archaeology that I'd like to do my part to help fix. So whether that be in the four-year world or at a community college, either of those would be great. I know that those jobs are difficult to get into and I'm happy to just keep working in CRM if I really can't find a job in something like that. Mm-hmm. Especially now like having met Murray who while he is a CRM for lack of a better word, archaeologist, he still has that opportunity to teach people about archaeology and engage with the community. Anything wherein I can do that, I'm happy with, basically.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting, too. So would, would your focus be more on, I mean, actually be on like, uh, I don't know, like like the, you, how you can get degrees and in, in courses of study in public archaeology and, you know, those areas of study? Or are you looking to focus in an area and then while you're doing your PhD, like for your dissertation, and then get a teaching job somewhere, hopefully, and fulfill those, I guess, the, the public archaeology dreams from that side of things.
3: You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, yeah, basically once I get the PhD and hypothetically get a job, which, you know, mm-hmm. big if these days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's say that happens. What I'd like to do is run some manner of field school if I can, whether it be, just a local thing in the area that I'm living or an over the summer in Scotland type thing, whatever I can mm-hmm. get my dirty little hands on basically and just allow for undergraduate students to get that experience. Even if they don't have an interest in like pursuing archeology span just to give them that opportunity, anything like yeah. that, just getting archeology span out there more to a wider audience. That's more or less my right. goal on a very basic sense.
0: Well, that's more or less the goal of the Archaeology Podcast Network, too.
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that'd be a great direction to go, uh, given your interest of wanting to share with others, because it opens you up to more positions, right? Like you're not 100% beholden on to getting a teaching job and I think that a lot of folks you know when they really start to fixate on that whole teaching job thing then they'll just take anything that comes along and it's like you know okay well if you didn't get at the highest level school then you'll take the next highest level and you'll take the next lowest level and then you get to the point where you know you're just getting abused by some university because you wanted to be a professor and your goals there there's a lot of room for uh, flexibility because you could get a job with you know regional parks or the NPS, or, you know, some other kind of local organization, because I mean, it is rare for someone to have something like what's going on in Scotland for a city to have an archaeologist, but it's not rare for there to be some kind of historic preservation commission or park service or something like that. And then you get to be on the historic properties, or you get to be on the cultural resources. And your whole goal is to share that with the community. And so you then you end up in that situation where you are teaching field schools like partnering with universities or connecting with high school students or middle school students and giving them those chances to go out and do you know what you love while you don't have to deal with all the stuff of working at a university yeah for sure (laughs) that brings a whole new universe into your you know life because you know professors are not normal i Andrew can attest to that. Maybe he's normal. I think Andrew might be the most normal professor, but I know, am so normal. <laughs> so normal. That's a that's a very strong accusation. You you and your backyard pool are so <laughs> normal, right? Yeah, that's it's normal to just let rain collect in your backyard and swim in it. That's what I do. Yeah. I'm adding the swimming part, sorry. I don't know yeah. if you're actually swimming in it. He does. He does backstrokes in there, I've seen it. We live very close together. I drive past it all the time. That's right. right. (laughs) You drive through it all the time as it floods into the street. Nobody likes Andrew's house. It's uh, flooding into everyone else's yard.
2: It may or may not be doing that right at this moment, Bill. Just (laughs) so you know.
1: (laughs) That's all right. Who am I to point fingers? Who are you? (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, like, uh, you know, folks find themselves in that kind of situation where they're super being coached to go into academia, and it's coming from people who made it right so Mm -hmm. there's kind of a like i don't know it's it's weird it's like a weird place to emphasis on stuff that doesn't matter for what you're talking about you want to share your craft with others they want you to write you know glorified blog posts and get them published into journals and you know bow down to get a couple hundred dollars in grant money and they they'll pat you on the back for that when you're shaking your head like you know i could have ran an entire field school with a local college and had them do a lot of the work and then me just partner along with it and got paid more than I would at this university. So I think that, you know, being open to it, it doesn't mean that if you get a tenure track job, you can't do what Andrew is doing. It just means that it's going to be in a different environment, right? With different cohort of colleagues with different goals and, and almost none of them dovetail with what you want to do. Yeah, for sure. And I think going
3: off the flexibility thing you're saying, I think COVID definitely taught me a lot about that because especially when like, you know, a global pandemic, your options are very much limited and you have to kind of deal with what's being offered to you. And from what I've gathered and even experienced in my emerging professional career, the same is very much true in archaeology in a general sense. The options are already, there's not a ton like You And you can't if you want to just settle on one specific thing, like I want to teach, I want to work at a four year or whatever. You're going to find yourself kind of limited in the scope of what you can actually do. And I'm not big on that. I want to have options. So, yeah,
1: I just right on. Yeah. And, you know, you'll also find yourself competing against other people who will do literally anything to get this job. Right. And so, yeah, that too. uh, If you don't want to sacrifice who you are as a person then, you know, watch out because there's there'll be dozens of people who are willing to do that just to say that they're a professor. Yes, I've met some already. <laughs> <laughs> i meant met plenty.
2: I bet. <laughs> yeah, I just totally agree. Well, I'm going to go ahead and agree with every single thing that Bill just said. Uh, <laughs> totally, totally true. And I, I love that part, Bill, where you're talking about these people who've already made it are telling you that, you know you you can do it too yeah. it's like yeah. it's like tom cruise telling you that you can be an actor too right. you know and it's like uh not exactly yeah. you know they 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 <laughs> have long left the real world of like okay here's the steps to get to here the chances are very low, but you know, here's other opportunities just in case along the way, if this looks terrible, you, you never hear them talk about that stuff. And that always bums me out. So yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's my job every
2: day. <laughs> right. dude? It's like, but we laugh, but I know it is. It's my job too. You know? Uh, and, and it's a, such an important job to be like, here's reality, yeah. you know? And it's unfortunate in my experience in the academic world that they don't want to hear reality yeah. that
3: always mm-hmm.
2: just freaks me out.
3: It is concerning uh, at your SCA presentation the other day at seeing the crowd's responses to some of the things you were saying which were more or, oh. or less what we were just talking about it, oh, so. oh, man, I wish Negative. I'd seen that It was
1: oh, it was quite funny in an unfortunate sort of way. Yeah <laughs> You've got three minutes Andrew recap I missed it what happened? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um so uh it was heather and i yeah actually, i know that, yeah that, that, I'm, I'm so bummed she's not she's not here right now but yeah. so we we just gave a little a little talk about like alternate ways of learning archaeology you know we talked about uh, basically what we did we talked about podcasting we talked about books we talked about blog posts and uh, other places to get archaeological knowledge you know the uh, all the stuff we always talk about on here. And we talked about getting jobs. We talked about the reality of this kind of stuff, the stuff that you and I were just talking about. We just brought these things up. We did a real world moment where it was like, hey, the real chances of these kind of jobs is this. Why not think about these other things? And the audience was, you know, they just they always react in that sort of cold you know, frigid sort of manner. Now, I'm not to say everyone react like that. I'm not here to say we got booed off the stage or something, but you can always feel it. There's a big contingent of the stop telling me about reality. Crowd. Yeah, yeah, there is.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I've seen it a lot of times.
2: Right. And again, I always find it so odd. I, I remember when I was a grad student asking professors about real world, you know, things like, like what are the chances of me truly getting a job? And they looked at me like I was just the devil. And the worst part was one of my fellow students took me aside and said, Andrew, please stop asking that. Yeah. And I'm like, what? You don't want to know. And he actually said, no. Wow. I'm like, what? So yeah. anyhow, yeah, my, my, my little mini rant, but- <laughs> But I want to hear more about Griffin, your rant, you know, (laughs) Uh,
1: I I can rant for hours. What do you want me to rant about? (laughs) You know, one of the one of the things I'd ask because you're like an up and coming uh, scholar. So, you know, what are the directions you'd like to see archaeology take?
3: Well, like we've touched on, I'd like to see a more public outreach approach. I think that the disparity between CRM and academia has gotten very bad. I know a lot of times it's played as a joke and I do. It's fun to like mess with either side be like oh you crm or you academics or whatever but i think on some level there is a genuine rivalry there that should not exist because there really does need to be what's the word, collaboration between the two if we want archaeology to actually be formidable too many academics are just publishing for like you said a couple hundred dollars worth of grant money and then it's not actually producing any meaningful research and i do think at its core archaeology is about researching the past and better understanding it and i think on some level even the most academic of academics have kind of lost sight of that because it's just become more about getting the grant money rehashing the same things not actually not doing the real field work that's required to actually get an understanding of the past and i don't know there's I'd, I'd just like to see that, that gap healed, and I'd like to do my part to fix that.
1: Yeah, right I on. I, I definitely second that because CRM folks, you know, are out there collecting this huge amount of data, and those companies that have been around for a long time, you know, they're really regionally focused because their office is in, you know, Phoenix or Milwaukee or whatever, and so they've got these projects that are within 500 miles, like gigabytes of points and photos and documents and all that stuff. And so, you know, those folks, you know, some of those bigger companies could be really regional professionals on certain kinds of archaeology that if you had access to all that data and you were at a Mm -hmm. university and you could, you know, you had the time to write these articles like that could be monumental because these reports and the data are really kind of stuck behind this, you know, wall for good reason. Because, you know, we don't want these sites to get compromised. So that stuff right. goes to the shipo and it just sits in this warehouse, right? Well, academics that have time to, you know, write on these kind of things and have access to these thousands and thousands of GIS points, tons and tons of site shapes, variation, all these different summaries over 20 to 30 years, like, you know, that's the kind of stuff that some university could really have a field day with an army of graduate students and, you know, scholars writing on this region's history and all this different stuff that's coming from this, this data set, like that could be, you know, really huge. It would give you the time depth, even though you didn't collect all the data to have access to all this stuff way more than our small field schools and our one-off, you know, weekends and six weeks over in St. Croix, you, you have access to all this information but the CRM folks don't have time to just sit there and write journal articles and books, whereas that's the goal of the, it seems like that's the main thing they want you to do in academia. So I do see where there'd be this really huge and fruitful potential for collaboration between companies and scholars and graduate students and stuff. But just like you were saying, it's it's kind of closed off because CRMers are kind of running around like, what's my next thing? What's my next hit? What's my next hit? And then the the academics are thinking, oh, well, that data, that doesn't meet our standards when it's crazy because, you know, a lot of these companies, they've really refined these recording and, you know, documentation standards. They're they're set by the state and they're yeah. recorded, you know, it's gotten better and better over time. So it's kind of crazy that folks are overlooking that whole potential right now, you know, and as you as a young scholar, like tapping into that kind of thing, like that would be something that would make your research way bigger than it is because you have tons And it'd be the kind of stuff that states and CRM companies really want to see happen regionally. And you get to do exactly what you're talking about by including students and communities and everybody else in, you know, at the level that they're able to to participate. I mean, I think that's great. Yeah,
3: for sure. I mean, the the material is all there to work with. The talent is all there. Everything to make it like what we're saying is there. It's just a matter of actually breaking down that barrier, and that is something I would hope to see happen in the near in the near future
2: yeah and i felt like that in a way murray cook and the field school in scotland kind of gives you the key to that you know it f- that's one of the things i thought was so interesting it's like oh that that meld of those places is already happening it can happen you yeah because sometimes here in the u.s like oh it's never gonna happen and it's like dude they're doing it yeah
3: for sure mm-hmm. i think i think there's even pockets of it in the u.s but it's definitely not the standard and they're all you know, very small kind of isolated projects that don't often get highlighted. I think it's a little easier in the UK or places like Europe because it's so intrinsically tied to the to the city and the government and all that. But the like, there's nothing truly stopping us from doing that in the United States as well. It's just a matter of organizing, I feel like mm-hmm. it'll be different, of course, like than it is in other countries. But the potential is still there. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's about all we have time for. Thank Griffin for coming on, and you know, we of course wish you, you know, good luck in in all your endeavors and and your PhD program. And maybe we can have you on again sometime in the future to
3: talk about that and how it's going. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you for having me. This was this was awesome.
0: All right. Well, with that, I think. Uh, well, thank Andrew for bringing on Griffin, and we will come back next time with, I'm sure. A fantastic show. Maybe not something as polarizing as job satisfaction. Uh, the last episode, <laughs> which I've already seen some comments on that.
2: Oh man. <laughs> so, I love the part yeah. where you were like, send all emails to Andrew Kinkella. <laughs> yeah, if anybody yes. has any
3: complaints about me, um, Kinkella taught me everything I know. So, so, uh, that's right. Uh, yeah. That's right.
0: <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thanks everybody, and we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash Podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnetcom slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Goodbye. See you guys next time. Goodbye.